Grasp with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robohub podcast. Today we'll be taking a closer look at how robots can learn to manipulate and grasp objects. As humans, one of the first skills that we learn is grasping. Even as a newborn, we already have the basic ability to grasp. And over the first years of life, we hone this skill to enable us to manipulate, pick up and hold a variety of items securely. To do this, we use several of our senses, including touch and sight. For robots, however, learning how to manipulate and grasp objects isn't as straightforward. In fact, it's a challenge that's been tackled by numerous research teams in numerous ways to varying degrees of success. And research in this field continues. To find out more, our interviewer Lily spoke to Jeanette Bogg, Assistant Professor at Stanford, whose research focuses on perception for autonomous robotic manipulation and grasping. More specifically, she develops goal-directed multimodal methods that can provide feedback for real-time learning and task execution. Dr. Borg speaks about her work in interactive perception and robot learning for grasping and manipulation tasks. She explains how robots and humans are different and outlines the challenges of high-dimensional data as well as unsolved problems such as continuous learning and decentralized manipulation. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, uh, so my name is Jeanette Bork. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford University in the computer science department. Um, I'm a roboticist who works on, um, uh, my research is basically at the intersection of robotics, computer vision, and machine learning. And I've always been interested in applying the methods that I developed towards grasping and manipulation. Can you talk a little bit about your path towards this research area? Sure. Um, so I studied um, computer science at the Technical University of Dresden in Germany. And uh, when I graduated from there with a German diploma at that time, um, I was actually pretty tired of computer science <laughs> and robotics as well. I already did my thesis in that field. Um, and I somehow wanted to use my technical skills, programming and developing, um, towards some other applications. So I joined a master program in Sweden um, at Chamish University on art and technology. And there I spent two years in Sweden uh, with a very diverse group of people. There were artists, visual artists. Um, choreographers, musicians, um, and also technical people like me, uh, engineers, uh, who came together and developed uh, interactive installations and art pieces. Uh, so that was fun. And then after two years, I was ready to venture back into robotics, and I found an um, ad for, um, uh, yeah, for PhD. Basically, there were PhD students who were searched at the KD, at KDH in Stockholm, mm -hmm. and uh, I applied. And I got accepted, and so in 2007 I started my PhD at the KDH in Stockholm with Danica Kragic, um, and uh, I graduated from there in 2000, uh, basically in, in winter 2011. And uh, yeah, it was fun. That's when I started working on grasping and manipulation and using visual feedback. Um, and then I joined uh, Stefan Charles' uh, new group at the MPI for Intelligent Systems in Tübingen, mm -hmm. first as a postdoc. And there I learned everything about um, 
control, low-level control of robots. Um, and uh, what I brought to the table there was basically my expertise in visual perception and how to use that for grasping and manipulation. And I put these two things together, basically closing the loop around these high-dimensional sensory information. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then I applied at some point for faculty positions uh, in the US and in Europe. And mm-hmm. that's how I ended up at Stanford. Wow. Right. Yeah. Do you still, do you find that you still use some of that kind of artistic background that you had for a few years there in your day-to-day work now? Um, Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Not really, I would say, other than I really value good-looking presentations (laughs) with papers (laughs) and the plots. But the kind of research that I do is very driven by hypothesis about what is actually important to enable a robot to be as dexterous and capable at manipulating everyday objects. And that is, there is a very clear metric there that, or actually it's debatable whether there's a clear metric, <laughs> but it's at least you can say relatively clearly whether a grasp has been a success or not. So whether the object slipped out of the hand or right. not, or whether a task has been achieved. Um, while in art, you can't, it's even hard to define what a success there even is. It's almost like a like a game or a play, like a that that has no structure in a way. It's more about um, creating a situation or an interaction, and there's no clear goal. So from that point of view, it's very different. Um, when it comes to creativity, maybe there's some aspect yeah. that at least it would be nice to think that it's still in my work. Yeah. Uh, but the way I try to actually get back to that part of my passion um, of combining art and technology is actually creating a course uh, right now at Stanford um, where I would like to bring together uh, people from all over the school uh, of engineering but also of the humanities and of the arts um, to bring them together into uh, small projects and actually have them develop this kind of interactive installation and maybe use some algorithms from machine learning and uh, actual real physical sensors yeah. to create So would that spaces. be like a robotics class that you would encourage people from other disciplines to take? Yeah. Or would, okay. It would be, I'm not sure if it's actually going to be a robotics class. I guess this depends on how you define robots. Maybe it could be. Yeah. But it's all more going to be on uh, combining art and technology. Okay. And, yeah. And well bringing that, different, different people together. Yeah. That leads to an interesting question, which is how would you define robots? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a very hard question, actually. Because in a way... A washing machine could be a robot, right? It has sensors, it has actuators, and it does a very particular job, but it uh, it does it in an adaptive manner mm-hmm. because of its sensors, right? So in a way, you could define a washing machine as a robot, but the ones, let's say, the kind of robots I'm interested in are those that... Um, uh, that can actually do tasks that are broader than just washing right. and laundry, those that can actually be more closer to humans and uh, do things or replicate the abilities that people have as well. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be much harder than it looks, um, but it's very intriguing to actually figure out how people work uh, by implementing um, methods, algorithms, hypotheses, basically, on a physical machine. Mm -hmm. What are some of the tasks or applications um, that you're most excited about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so personally, I have always been working on grasping and manipulation. Um, 
because it's um, it goes beyond navigation and right. enables actually many more oh, such a broad set of applications. Uh, you yeah. need manipulation in areas like uh, in human-centered areas like mm -hmm. um, healthcare um, or medical robotics. You need grasping manipulation in when you want a robot help you in dangerous or hazardous environments like mines yeah. or underwater where pe people just can't go anymore or it would be dangerous for them. And you need um, grasping manipulation in warehouses and logistics and all of these things. So it's just very broad. Um, so that's one thing that I'm really interested in, or that's why I'm really interested in grasping manipulation. The other reason why I'm so interested in it is because there's such a contrast between people and robots in terms of capabilities, and it's, it's a riddle in a way um, what the secret is. It actually <laughs> enables people, but um, uh, it's missing in robots. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You talked a little bit about sensors, and I know you do a lot of work with perception. What do you think are the most useful sensors for a robot to have? Um, and do you think that plays a role into the difference between people and robots and yeah. what they're able to do? That's a good point. Um, yeah, so uh, definitely um, there's a big difference between robots and people in terms of the sensing abilities. Right. Um, and uh, so first of all, there's different sensor hardware that we have, but then we also process them in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then we also have very different actuators. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, already, if you uh, if you work in manipulation or if you um, think about manipulation, it's all about making contact with things or physically interacting with the world and changing it in a way that you want it to be like. And that always involves some sort of contact, mm -hmm. uh, almost always. And um, if you can actually feel that contact and actually judge it, um, and uh, you could, for example, understand the material of different objects, understand maybe whether it's slippery or not, what's kind of the friction that it has. Um, and so these are all uh, important pieces of information that help you or help us, but also would help a robot to actually manipulate objects in a better and safer and more robust way. Mm -hmm. um, so um, if you think about manipulation robots, um, a sense of touch is extremely important um, and uh, of course also visual feedback is very important uh, and maybe not all the time um, uh, or continuously during, during a, uh, while doing a task uh, but certainly um, uh, uh, using these sensors at particular moments during manipulation uh, is important to actually achieve a task. Then. Um, there are also sensors on robots um, that people will never have. Like, for example, autonomous uh, cars. They have lidars, which are extremely useful uh, yeah. on autonomous cars, and people just don't have that kind of uh, sensing ability and that right. kind of precise depth perception at, the, uh, at that distance. Um, and um, so, yeah, so um, that's just a great... Uh, sensor that got developed in industry that is not human inspired mm -hmm. at all right but uh, it's extremely useful to robots um, so there's also this uh, uh, there so there's an overlap 
um, in a way on uh, sensors that I would say people and robots uh, in a way have that are similar and then there are the sensors that people don't have uh, but robots have and vice versa. Yeah. I have two yeah. follow-up questions. Yes. One is how, how close are we, like where technology is at right now, how close are we to replicating kind of the sensation of human touch? Mm -hmm. Or like how much can we really learn from that? Yeah. And then the second question is with things like infrared in mind or LIDAR, as you mentioned, um, do you think we'll ever get to a point where robots are actually better manipulators hmm. than people? Hi, yeah, okay, so the first question was of how far we are to actually yeah, uh, equip a robot with the sense of touch. Uh, and I think there are some really interesting sensors out there. So there's, for example, um, uh, the biotech sensor from Syntouch that is really biomimetic, meaning that it mm -hmm. kind of really tries to replicate a human fingertip. So it has temperature sensors and even has a f uh, like a fingerprint. Um, and uh, so it tries to really replicate all the modalities that a person actually senses through uh, the fingertip. Um, so that's really interesting. Then there are sensors that are actually optic, uh, optical. So mm -hmm. they have a camera and they film basically how uh, a deformable material that is kind of sitting on top of this uh, camera sensor is deforming during manipulation. And that is also extremely high resolution, very different from what people obviously feel, yeah. but extremely useful to robots. So is that a camera facing a deformable a material and that, that yes. the material touches the thing and the yes. camera observes? Interesting. Exactly. That is called GelSight. It's a sensor that was actually developed by Ted uh, and Ted Ailson's group at MIT. Cool. Um, and it's a very interesting sensors, and there have been also works here at ICRA that exploit the sensor, which are very interesting. Um, very different from what people perceive, but I think uh, these are getting to the point where uh, they really enable much more than what we had a few years ago when we mostly had cameras and some really low-resolution tactile sensors. Um, but I think the now I think the attention shifts more to how do I process this sensory data that is now really rich and uh, high resolution. How do I process this so as to inform the controller that runs on the robot or mm -hmm. the decision maker, right? And how do I do this quickly? Because on mm -hmm. a robot, you're always resource constrained, right? Um, so how do you do that in milliseconds? I think that's where it shifts right now, yeah. too. And then you had another question. The second question was Do you think manipulators will ever be better than us because they have right. sensors we can't have? Yeah. So in a way, there are already uh, manipulators that are better than people, right? Mm -hmm. In factories, for example, there are particular tasks that robots can do much better than any person would be able to do because they have not necessarily sensors that are better, um, but they have uh, hardware and, and uh, control bandwidth um, and, a, and accuracy that is not achievable by a person. The kind of repe repeatability is actually not achievable, right? So robots are... Um, uh, very good on certain places in a factory line, for example, when assembling cars. Um, and some tasks still have to be done by people, right? And they cannot be automated. So in a way, in like very narrow setups, robots are actually already outperforming people. Um, but uh, when, as soon as we step out of the factory and uh, allow more variations and more uncertainty, that level of performance relative to what people can do actually drops really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So will we at some point have robots that are better? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. It's really hard to make these predictions. Um, 
I think large improvements can be made in narrow areas yeah. and uh, also when maybe in a shared autonomy setting where people yeah. are actually giving certain kinds of information and the robot kind of does the more the exactly those things where it's good at while the person um, takes over um, for for example perception and semantic interpretation mm -hmm. etc also of course high level reasoning and hard yeah. to define what really is better which is kind of yes. like the art yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly ways, yeah. because you can be much better in a narrow setup but is, mm -hmm. does that mean that robot is actually in general better than humans actually it's not really right yeah. can you talk about um, some of the ongoing projects that you have in your research sure. lab now um, yeah, so I can talk about the works that are presented right now here at ICRA at this Perfect. conference. So there are two papers here. Both of them are actually about how to include the sense of touch mm -hmm. um, or how to equip a robot with the sense of touch while it's learning to do a certain task. Um, and uh, one of these works is about um, actually grasping uh, in a better way. There we include uh, contact information. Uh, so there we really put emphasis on the coordination of the fingers on a multi-fingered hand while grasping. Um, and what we found is that basically taking contact into account helps uh, in particular when you have um, uncertainty about the object and when the shape of the object is very complex. Mm -hmm. And the second work is also about fusing about the sense of touch and how we can fuse it with the sense of vision um, to learn a lower dimensional representation of that kind of very high dimensional messy visual and uh, haptic data mm -hmm. and then use that in a, in a control loop that actually makes the robot do things. And we tested this on a very classical automation task which is peg insertion um, but different from previous work we actually don't tell the robot what kind of peg it has so it kind of has to feel its way uh, to actually do the task uh, in the end. So that's kind of the two works that I actually presented. Is right are these th is it the multi-fingered robot? Is that three fingers? Yeah, it's what still only three-fingered. It? It's a bared hand. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so you, you're kind of talking about touching in order to learn, but how mm -hmm. does the robot like learn to touch? Huh. Okay. Or how does it know what it is that it's feeling right. to inform it, like whether it's a square peg or a round peg? Right. So we didn't explicitly code that in. So we didn't let it know. So it basically, it doesn't really know. It knows definitely that uh, the peg matches the hole. So that okay. it's, there is a solution to the problem, basically. Mm -hmm. this, is very, uh, this is definitely something we assume. Um, but it doesn't know basically, like it basically has to use uh, the images it gets from a camera and the information from a four stock sensor at the wrist mm -hmm. um, to feel its way uh, to the right alignment with the hole and then the actual, do the actual insertion. And now, um, so in a way, it, it, uh, um, so you ask, um, um, it feels to learn and how does it learn how to use the sense of touch yeah. um, so in that particular work we use a reinforcement learning approach where we reward the robot when it is successful with the task mm -hmm. um, so basically what we realized is if we don't give it a sense of touch and only give it visual information as input um, it never really manages to learn to complete the task fully Interesting. because that difference 
um, between almost making it and really completing the task makes visually very very little difference yeah but it makes a huge difference in the when you actually look at the data from the force talk sensor that gives mm -hmm. you the sense of touch or it gives this robot the sense of touch so if it only has visual information it's very hard for it to actually figure out whether it actually succeeded uh, only if it has the sense of touch uh, it can actually learn it so um, it's a bit hard to say what it really learns because it's yeah. an enforcement learning method, yeah. so it's always it's often like a black box. Specifically, that particular method we use, which is model free, um, but we definitely saw a benefit of uh, the sense of touch. Uh, yeah. It could basically learn the task first. It could actually learn the task, uh, and it could do it also much faster than uh, with only using vision. Impressive. What yeah. are the challenges in combining the two? Right. Yeah, so the challenges are actually that these two modalities are really different in the kind of data that they deliver. The uh, camera gives you 640 times 480 pixels mm -hmm. in RGB, and uh, they come at 30 hertz. So every 33 milliseconds, there is an image delivered to you. And then uh, the Vostok sensor gives you uh, six measurements of uh, the 3D forces and 3D torques uh, at the end effector, and it gives you that information every millisecond. Okay. So the, that's a lot of yeah, data. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of data, um, and it's very different from the visual data, right? So it's like a completely, um, they, they have a completely different structure, mm -hmm. and um, uh, yet we know that they are um, concurrent in time, right? So you can see when you make contact, but you can even better feel it, right? And there's right. kind of the same response, uh, uh, or basically when you make contact, there's a very particular response visually, which is the robot stops moving, right? It can't go. Uh, and also you see a spike in the, in the contact, in the touch data, mm -hmm. right? And these events kind of happen at the same time, um, but the, the modalities are actually very different. So the challenge here was really to choose particular um, architectures in our model that can actually take that uh, data um, in, process it, and then fuse it into into one state representation. Um, and the um, uh, special thing or the contribution that we made in that work is that we showed um, we can learn a good lower dimensional representation of that very heterogeneous data yeah. um, by uh, fulfilling um, tasks, uh, perceptual tasks or prediction tasks um, that are um, not directly related to the pack insertion task, um, but basically um, are related to it. So predicting visual dynamics, for example, how the image changes in the next steps, whether there will be contact made in the next, next step or not. These kinds of things we asked uh, our model to predict forward to learn a good representation of that fused data. Interesting. Yeah. At this, at that time scale, do you have to worry, or is one of your issues in synchronizing the two sensors together and making sure that you have? Yeah, so that is of course a very uh, big technical problem mm -hmm. to actually synchronize these sensors, um, and we do have a timestamp uh, for each of these, but we also know that the camera data is uh, delayed by approximately 30 or 40 milliseconds, actually. So it's not quite time aligned. Oh, wow. um, yeah. But, um, so we did not 
why we are aware of this. We did not explicitly fix this in this work, but what we, um, um, an additional task that we ask our model to be good at doing is to predict whether two um, pieces of data from the forced sensor and the visual camera are actually time aligned, whether they are actually from the same moment in time. And by training the model to do that, it knows uh, kind of that, okay, even though they are shifted in time because of a camera delay, these are actually coming, uh, these are actually corresponding to the same moment in time. And if I look for actually making contact, this is the pattern in both of these sensors yeah. that I should be looking at. And this particular loss um, for learning the representation turned out to be extremely important, much more important than we actually anticipated. So yeah. that was an interesting lesson that we learned actually mm -hmm. from this work. So you're all of you mentioned that this is model free. All of the aspects of this are learned online as it's doing this process. Yeah, unfortunately not. So this is actually okay. a super interesting future direction, I think, to learn um, uh, to learn really continuously. Um, so in our case, what we did is uh, we collected data with the robot, uh, basically half an hour of data, and then we learned a representation model on that data offline. Then we fixed that representation model and we learned uh, through reinforcement learning on the robot uh, a good policy. Mm -hmm. um, that on the real robot, that took five hours, which okay. is short for yeah. actually doing something on a real robot, but it would take even longer if we learned the entire representation model online. Right. So in a way, we saved time by doing this uh, offline uh, before. But I think it's still, personally, I still find it very frustrating to wait five hours <laughs> until the <laughs> robot finally learns uh, to do this insertion. I don't quite know how long it would take for a child, for example, how that right. exactly compares, yeah. right? But still, I think there could be more interesting things done. Like, um, uh, you use one policy and maybe adapt it online to a new pack instead of waiting again five hours, mm -hmm. uh, right? So that would be interesting, and there are people looking at continuous learning and continual learning right now. And there the challenge is that the robot doesn't forget what it has learned before. Um, right. So yeah, th that's yeah. actually a very interesting field right interesting. now, I think. Yeah. What are some of, so in this in this realm of like touching and manipulating and learning on, and yeah. what are some of the um, things that you would be most excited to work on next? <sighs> so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so obviously there are also some interesting things on, um, uh, on extending this work that we presented here. Uh, so for example, one of these papers that was about grasping is currently only in simulation because that's it, it takes a lot of time to actually put a good paper together. So we didn't have the time to actually bring it on a real robot. So I would love to see how we can uh, bring these ideas um, uh, to a real robot. Um, I also am currently interested in manipulating deformable objects as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there the focus is more on uh, how can we represent that very uh, that object which has a very high dimensional state space of what kind of shapes and forms that can actually come right um, so there we are focusing on perception on how to model the dynamics of this and how to plan um, so that's something I'm very excited about um, I'm also building uh, my own robots my own mobile manipulation platforms cool. right now um, and uh, that like is like hardware, everything from scratch. Uh, not quite from scratch. So I'm I'm actually buying uh, three arms, okay. um, 
and uh, I have three platforms that I got donated uh, from a company from Google X actually they had them um, they weren't using them so nice. I was uh, allowed I basically got them as a present and we refurbished them um, and I have three students working on this right now while we're speaking. <laughs> and I hope that at some point, each of these three platforms has one arm and then they're supposed to collaborate. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, so this is something that is also uh, new to me. Uh, I know a lot about grasping and manipulation, uh, but I always looked at it from a centralized perspective. So I'm interested in looking at a decentralized um, perspective, mm. which is more flexible when it comes to multiple robots actually yeah. working together. So you'd have yeah. to give them the, the, the also the capability to communicate with each other. Yeah, that, so that is uh, that, are, that are all very interesting questions that I don't yet have an answer to. Yeah. Uh, I, for me, it's important uh, uh, to do it in a decentralized manner because of the flexibility and also to me it's important to have onboard sensing only. I don't want to use motion capture system mm -hmm. Um, I would really like to use these onboard sensing, but the problem then is then um, that each robot only has a partial uh, observation that is not overlapping with the others, right? Um, and they probably need to communicate some information, but I don't yet know what that exactly has to be right. and how often this has to be. Maybe it has to be event-based or when maybe a certain uh, amount of uncertainty is reached, uh, so this, these are all open questions that I find super interesting and exciting. Cool. Um, yeah. Do most of your students come from a CS background? Actually not. So this is one of the things I really love about robotics. You can come in from so many different backgrounds. So I'm a computer scientist, mm -hmm. but uh, my first PhD student uh, is a mechanical engineer. Uh, she actually presented uh, just now here. Um, I have uh, several uh, students from electrical engineering. Um, I co-advise students from AeroAstro as well. Um, and I have ICM Eastern, which is on mathematical uh, uh, engineering, basically. Interesting. So yeah, it's a, a very mixed uh, group, basically. Yeah. Yeah. If you could only give one piece of advice to someone who really wanted to do robotic manipulation, what would it be? OK, so when I started, um, when I started as a PhD student to just um, to look at this problem, um, my approach was, oh, I just have to make perception perfect, and mm -hmm. then all these other things from control and from learning, we can just use them out of the box uh, as soon as perception is perfect. <laughs> and that, uh, basically, by the end of my PhD, I threw that belief overboard. I just accepted um, that there will always be uncertainty, uh, and therefore you always have to be reactive um, and deal with unforeseen events, always have to be ready, uh, equip your robot with uh, the ability to react and to adapt. Yeah. Um, and uh, the idea that you have to build a perfect world model and then everything is going to work out is, is just futile. I think that's, <laughs> that's the one lesson I learned okay. when I came out of my PhD. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Yeah. And that's all from us for today. But don't forget to check out robohub.org forward slash podcast to access all our past episodes as well as a wealth of other robotics and tech content. And if you have an idea for an episode or would like to join our global team, get in touch with our president, Audro, at audro.nash at robohub.org. 
And we'll be back with another episode in about two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Grasp with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.